Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm here this week with Adam Reynolds, Lead Product Evangelist at Coherent. I'm so excited to have you here, Adam. How are you feeling? Thanks, John. I'm feeling good. It's good to be here. Looking forward to having a chat with you. Me too. The place I always like to start with my guests is with origin stories. So let's go back in time a little bit. And could you tell us about how you got into coding and eventually started your career as this low-code evangelist? Yeah, absolutely. So given I'm 40 years old this year, I was obviously raised during the time that technology started coming into homes, like on a wide scale. So my dad worked in IT since the 70s. So he was bringing PCs into the house. We had Nintendos everywhere, a technology household. My brother works in tech. My dad worked in tech. My mom pulled her hair out because we were obsessed with tech. So it's sort of a natural progression for me that I was never sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, originally, I wanted to be an architect, and then I found out it takes seven years to complete the train to do that. I was like, do you know what? Maybe not. Just sort of eventually fell into a point where I, like, I need to do something at university. Let's do computing science. Went to university, did the computing science degree, part of that programming modules. Saw a lot of people around me struggling with programming because it's a strange mindset being a programmer. And not everybody who does computing falls into that programmer bucket. There's plenty of other things to do around programming. They all find other things to do. But there were some of us, it's just like, do you know what? I get this. It really clicked with me. And from there, I did a work placement as an ASP.NET developer using VB.NET to start with. And from there, went back, finished my degree, got a job as a .NET developer doing web development. I spent 13 years as a full-stack developer. During that time, did a load of SQL, database, HTML, ASP.NET websites, worked in SAP. I've done stuff with Flash and Action Scripts. I've done desktop applications. I spent a large part of my time building weird and wonderful things across all sorts of different tech stacks. And eventually, when I decided to move on, I found myself in the low-code space, which was a strange experience. It's not where I ever intended to end up. Like a lot of people who were around developers with software development 20 years ago, low-code's been about and visual development's been about in various shapes. And developers will always tell you, no, it's terrible. It will never work. It's never going to replace software developers. It's a horrible thing. I've been there myself. I've said exactly the same things. But after 13 years of writing SQL statements, I was just about done with it and thought I'd try something else. And I actually tried a new low-code platform. I say new, it had been around for about 10 years, but it was a well-founded, well-built low-code platform. And I fell in love with low-code at that point. And from there, I did a few years as a low-code developer, uh, worked as a solution architect, really got to grips with a couple of low-code platforms and eventually moved to work at Mendix in the heart of low-code, where I fell into developer evangelism. So 
I've had a bit of a weird journey. I was in the marketing department at Mendix, so went from software to marketing to evangelism. It's one of those jobs that you sort of never expect to be in. But I fell into that space and absolutely love talking about low code, telling people about how great it is. And yeah, that's how I got to where I am today. That's awesome. You know, it's funny, like when I think back to when I was starting out as a developer, and I'm a little bit younger than you, but not by much, I did a lot of VB6 work. And one of the things I remember really distinctly about it is that there were a lot of drag and drop elements to it. And there was a lot of stuff that like, when I try new low code platforms reminds me of that IDE. And it kind of reminds me of this like weird, magical developer experience that people strive to create. Have you ever seen the the Brett Victor talk about this? I don't think I have, no. There's this incredible talk. It's quite old now. It's maybe 10, mm-hmm. perhaps even 15 or 20 years old, where Brett Victor, who's you know a very kind of influential computer scientist, gives a presentation about like what a potential ideal end state is for programming. And mm-hmm. what he demonstrates is you like write some code on one side and then immediately see what it does on the other side, right? There's no compilation. There's no like crazy like deployment workflow. It's just like what you see is what you get from the code to the output. And low code in some ways like fulfills that promise. It's certainly a stepping stone towards it. I mean, it's funny you should say that because the company I work for now, we work around Excel, essentially. We take Excel and make it into a productionizable system where Excel falls down. But Excel has that like immediate response to the changes you make. It's got that paradigm to it. It just falls down at that let's deploy it point. So yeah, it's an interesting one that Loco does get you that step closer to that sort of instant feedback mechanism. It's certainly a lot easier to develop stuff a lot faster. And with the advent of AI and being able to generate code snippets, and we are definitely shifting more towards ease of production. Will it ever be quite typing a few words here and it works? I don't know. I never say never. So at Coherent, I'd love to hear more about this kind of Excel to app workflow, right? And I use a ton of Excel and Google Sheets and all the similar things, right? Because it's really, you're, you're right, like it gives you a really quick feedback loop. But what does that look like at Coherent? And how do you sort of like help people bridge that gap? Yeah, so as a software developer, I've been given, I don't know how many spreadsheets. And someone said, I built this great spreadsheet. It's this wonderful model. And you put some numbers in here. It does a load of calculations. It's great. But we need people to be able to use it. Turn this into an app. And I'll then spend six months trying to tear this thing apart, figure out how it works, put it back together, sort out my data structures to match it, and then deploy it. And then they'll go, ah, it's not quite right. Can we just change this bit? And there's another two months gone. So when I was introduced to Kieran Spark, I was introduced to the concept of, well, we take that spreadsheet and we turn it into a consumable API. So the logic in your spreadsheet, you put some tags into it to say, these are the key input figures and these are the outputs I'm looking for. Drag it into Coherent Spark and you get a REST endpoint. I was just sat there for a second. I'm like, can't be that easy. But I mean, it takes me six months or so to reproduce these complicated spreadsheets. You might have 20 sheets with a million formulas. It can take you forever to convert. No, you just drag it in and it does it. Okay. Well, that means my digital transformation project to turn 20 spreadsheets into apps has now gone from two years to two months. 
And I can then take low code and put a low code wrapper over the top and make some nice looking web apps that pretty much anybody can take a low code platform connected to a REST API. That's not a difficult thing to do in most low code platforms. So I'm essentially fulfilling that citizen developer promise here that they can build the logic in Excel, which billion people worldwide know how to use Excel, give or take. They can build the logic, build the front ends, connect the two up, and you've got an application. I mean, that's pretty incredible stuff. And that's why I joined the company. I was literally, like, every low-code platform I've worked with would benefit from this tool. I don't see how this can fail. This is a brilliant product. That's awesome. It's really cool to have that level of conviction about something, too. Like, I mean, I do feel like a lot of people who are experts at Excel are effectively programmers anyway, even if they don't call themselves that. And like adding that like next step where you can actually ingest the data in a standardized way, because like getting data out of Excel was always a challenge, right? Yep. So it makes a lot of sense. The one like, if I'm playing devil's advocate though, okay. the counterpoint that I think of is the frustrating six months of iteration that you described is someone's job, right? And so like, what are the implications of making that so easy that you no longer need a developer to do it? So that developer can now focus their time, actual application work. This conversion process is getting rid of a bunch of logical calculations. But the developer is not going to thank you for giving them that job. I certainly never did. And it means they can focus on the bigger picture stuff because, yes, we wrap that logic up and make it consumable. But that's not a stateful application. You still need to consume it somehow. We are putting mechanisms in place so you can do it from spreadsheet to spreadsheet. But that's not what everybody wants. You're going to want to integrate it with your CRM system or to put a web front end on it. So much like the promise of low code, making developers' lives easier, taking away the tasks that you don't want to do. You want to focus on the interesting value add stuff. You don't want the mundane SQL statements or, hey, I've got to write another login page. That's what low code gets rid of. Coherence mark we take away. There's 20 sheets here where you need to tear apart, pull out the calculations, build page structures to support those calculations again. You test it, fix it, retest it, figure out where the bug is. Then six months later, someone says, oh, can you change this? Oh, great, I've got to go back into these reams of code to figure out where this problem is. It takes that problem away. Personally, from my development background, I would have been more than happy to have this tool. I would have loved it. Yeah. In looking at low code, like both at Coherent and Mendix and other places, how much of the sort of like output is internal facing versus external facing? Like, are people using this to build customer facing applications or are they using it to simplify business processes or both? It is a bit of both. I think predominantly it tends to be internal applications because where low code is at the minute, the licensing model doesn't tend to be particularly friendly to external facing applications. You can do it. I've done it. I've built external facing applications, but I think you'll find the bulk of the use is for enterprise applications or small internal apps. You want to do public facing apps? You definitely can though. Some platforms support it better than others. There's platforms like Retool, for example, where it's great for building quick low-code applications. You want to create a small app for someone to enter some data and process it and get some data out. Retool's great for that. You want to build something super pretty. 
you're looking at your IH systems in your Mendix where you can completely customize the front end. You've got CSS slash SAS control and you can build absolutely anything. I work with a guy at Mendix who they were doing a sales pitch to a hotel chain and he went to their website, took the styles from their website, created them an app that looks just like their website. It was a thing of beauty, it really was. And that's the kind of thing you can do with some loco platforms. You've got the right tool for the job at the end of the day. But yeah, you can do internal, external, mix of both. It's sky's the limit. I've not found I keep one question I get asked about low code a lot is what can't you do with low code? And I was like, honestly, there's a point I'm like, real time financial transactions, you know, high volume trades and things, maybe that's but then there was a team at Mendix who did a project where they dealt with 100,000 transactions a second. And I'm like, actually, what can't you do with low-code? I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've used Retool personally more than some of the other platforms you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that basically anything is possible. The one caveat I would give to that is anything is possible if you can mentally fit it into the model that the low-code platform provides. Right. So like me as a programmer, if I'm writing a Rails app, there's a particular opinionated way to design how different things work. Low code platforms have the same paradigm where it's like, I need to know what the right object is called. I need to know what the right like transform is called. You know, all these different things. You kind of have to understand the jargon and how they all fit together and be able to design within those confines. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things I've touched about previously in a blog post is low code. It's not trying to replace programming. It's just another kind of programming. In my opinion, it's faster, it's easier, it's more consistent, it's great, it's fantastic. But it's not there to supplant other types of programming because you're right, it's a different paradigm, a different structure. It's a different way of thinking about things like, I mean, even take out systems and Mendix. Out systems database, if you've come from a relational database background, you'll look at it, you go, I get this primary keys, foreign keys, makes sense. You jump to Mendix, they use an association structure where you go and request some data and say, right, and for this piece of data, go and get me the children for it. It traverses an association, gets you that data, which is a different way of thinking about how you build that application. Because you're not just saying, well, this is the primary key from that page. Get me anything tied to this primary key. You go, well, I came from this entity here. I'm going to another page with this entity. Get me its children. Both equally valid ways to do it, just different mindset. Yeah. So getting to kind of the idea of teaching people about low code and, you know, being an evangelist in this space, a lot of the developer relations people I talk to are primarily concerned with things like the developer experience, right? Like, do we have good documentation? Is our messaging developer friendly? You know, are our SDKs up to date? All of those different things that, you know, might become part of a DevRel strategy or developer experience team. What are the low-code equivalents, right? Because I imagine you're not primarily speaking to people who are software engineers, right? Like you're probably talking to a wider variety of users. Absolutely. The original sales pitch for low code was it's citizen development. Everyone can do it. Come on, everybody, come do some development. You'll find now that for some platforms, that's still how they message it. Are you talking retool, bubble, air kit? They are accessible and will talk to that sort of audience and say, 
it's easy to build this, you do this, you do that. It's quite simple. When you look at the enterprise side of things with your Mendix and your OutSystems and to an extent Power Platform, although it sort of plays between both spaces, is a bit of a strange one. They tend to market now and, and they're actually trying to engage developers more. They have developer relations teams and they're trying to get more professional developers on board because they've recognised that citizen developers absolutely have a place with those platforms and can build small applications. And there are even strategies where you can implement citizen developer teams. But around that, you need a professional developer team. So they are doing similar outreach to the developers on the same lines of documentation and training and what you might have done in traditional code. This is how you do it in low code. There's some things I've talked about there in the past. It's very much a similar conversation still. And something I've spoken to developers myself to say that shift into low code isn't giving up skills. It's just shifting to another language. It's a different pattern. Um, it's something I try and encourage developers to look at because there are applications where you don't want to spend two weeks building the security layer. You just need to get a product out the door. You're there to solve a problem at the end of the day. And low-code platforms get you to that solution quicker than traditional methods. Still, there are times when you need traditional code. There's no getting around that. I mean, what do you think low-code platforms are built in? I guess I'm curious about the other angle of this too, right? Like, of course, you know, many low-code platforms are have a piece of their product that developers engage with, right? And quite a lot of developers engage with them. But when you're engaging with those like citizen developers who might have less of a background in software engineering or computer science, like how do you actually go about explaining these technical concepts to them? Like I'm trying to imagine a non-technical like PM or something going in to build a dashboard in one of these tools and learning what a variable is for the first time or like a loop or a function. Like how do you actually like create resources and teaching materials and documentation for that audience? Generally speaking, there are academy platforms, learning platforms associated with these loco tools that are quite good at softly introducing you to these concepts. And I think the whole visual paradigm of programming absolutely helps with explaining these things. If you look at essentially a flowchart at the end of the day, you start at point A and you want to get to point B and there are steps in between. And it's like, hey, you want to store a number, you're going to need a variable or a variable. Drag this thing on here and that stores a number for you great that's what i need you to know do you care that it's called a variable or an integer not really it's somewhere you put a number and that's all you need to know because once you've got that number you can then work with it what's a loop well it's this box here and everything in this box happens until you reach the criteria that tells it not to happen anymore it's a loop it's about explaining things in that visual way rather than trying to expect people to understand that hey it's an if statement it's a switch statement all those things that you learn at university that at the end of the day, they're the same across every platform. The syntax is just different. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's funny because when you look at like tools that they use to teach children programming, like mm -hmm. Scratch or similar things, there's yeah. a lot of similar concepts like dragging and dropping, you know, a number from one place to the other, right? It's really, really similar. And I'm not trying to say that like people who use low code platforms are equivalent to children, but like, as a teaching tool, there's a lot of similar, like, shared, you know, knowledge. Well, there's a good reason why these tools are used for teaching kids to program, because it's an easy thing to understand and follow. It doesn't mean that you can't build some really complicated things in Scratch, though. 
if you really get in there and start putting loads of stuff in there, I'm sure you can build super complicated things. It's like people who use Minecraft to build computers. You can do such mind-blowing things in Minecraft that I see videos and I'm like, they've done what? With Minecraft and Redstone ore trails. And I'm like, I just don't even know where you begin. Low-code's the same. It's just visual components to build a program. If it helps you to think of it as, hey, this decision block here is an if statement, great. That's all it is under the hood. Yeah. You're just looking at a pretty picture rather than lines of code. So with the idea of citizen developers and sort of like democratizing who can create applications, where do you think AI fits in? Obviously, that's the hype thing right now. But like realistically, yeah. where do you think it fits in? It's an interesting one, isn't it? AI is obviously the vote over the moment. Coherent, there's so many conversations going on around AI. What can we do to make spreadsheets better with AI? And there's some super smart people at Coherent who will talk for days about how we can use AI to make spreadsheets better and even how we can use that to facilitate the code that generates out the back of it. With low code, I know, I mean, Mendix introduced an AI assistant two years ago, I think now, which I mean, IntelliSense is an AI system. When you think about it, it suggests the next bit of code. And that's sort of where AI ties into low code predominantly is what am I doing next? What am I trying to achieve here? If it can recognize a pattern, it can suggest the rest of the flow for you. You can use it to generate validation rules. You can use it to increase efficiency and say, hey, I've built this microflow, which is what Mendix calls a logical construct. Where is it inefficient? Where can I make this better? And that's kind of where AI tools tie in with that. It's not like with traditional code where you might just go, give me a block of code that does this. Although I was speaking to someone earlier today who said I was trying to write, he was trying to write some code to calculate something. I can't remember what he said it was. Cartesian products, I think he was talking about. And he's like, I went to a loco platform and it confidently gave me an answer. And then I tried it and it failed miserably. I'm like, but AI is not there yet. We're not at producing code and making your job easier to do to an extent that you don't have to do anything anymore. I find AI personally is great for doing drafts for things. I've got to write a blog post or a social post. It's great to get a quick draft out of it. But even then, proofread it, check it, and then use it to inspire your content. I, I don't see it making huge dents in development within the next 12 months. Well, we'll get there. Absolutely get there. I don't want to call into question the, the low-code evangelist part of your career, but like, is there a future that low-code tools sort of become deprecated because AI can write entire applications for you? Like, Is that a realistic vision? If it can write a low-code application, then it can write a code application and all programmers are in trouble. But ultimately, programming is a creative process. Right. Someone comes to you with a problem and you need to figure out how to fix it. Someone may have fixed that problem before, but if they've done that, you can Google it and go on Stack Overflow and copy and paste. AI would just make that faster. Chances are it's going to be a unique problem for your business. Is AI going to be able to fix that for you? I'm not convinced anytime soon it will be. But as soon as it starts writing code for us, I mean, I fear for all professions, jobs, let's face it. Yeah, I mean, that's true. If it can build an advanced application that actually functions, then we probably don't have jobs anymore. I mean, yeah, I think it's a long way. Players, writers, 
artists are already having issues because it's copying works of art and using them to inspire its own works. Yeah, it's a interesting 24 months we've got ahead of us, I'd say, to see how people engage with it and what we do with it going forwards. I'm not going to go down the Arthur C. Clark. I think it was Clark. We talked yeah. about the singularity point and don't want to even think about that. Yeah. I love science fiction, but I also am quite enjoying AI stuff these days. Yeah, I care about the implications, but I, I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> so when you think about like developers getting more engaged with low-code platforms and that unlocking some level of like productivity or creativity, where should people start? Like, imagine I'm a software engineer at a company doing who knows what, right? Like, how do I start tinkering with low code in a way that makes my life better? First off, pick a platform. I mean, there's so many out there and they've all got different strengths and weaknesses. There's different tiers to low code platforms. So it depends on what you want to build. If you're doing something small and a hobby level, Retool's a great one. I like Retool. I found it, especially as a developer, I found Retool quite easy to click with and use and build stuff. It just sort of naturally clicked for me. Bubble, on the other hand, I struggled with. I struggled to get Bubble to do what I wanted to do. But a guy I work with, he was actually from an actuarial background. He's like, I loved Bubble, couldn't get Retool to work for me. So you need to try a couple, give it a fair chance. Don't just look at it for half an hour and go, it's rubbish, doesn't do it. Because it does take a little bit of time to get you, as you mentioned earlier, in that right mindset and to work with their patterns to build stuff. And the thing that really clicked for me was I built, as I moved from my .NET job to my low-code job, I'd finished building a .NET application just before I left that was a dynamic form builder, which had taken me a good few months to build in .NET. And I thought, do you know what? I know what the structure looked like for that. Let's rebuild it in OutSystems at the time. And I did it in about two days. And I sort of sat there and banged my head on the desk for about five minutes like, how have I not tried this before? Because I've just managed to recreate this thing in, I don't know, I can't even work out what factor of time faster it was. It was ridiculous. And that's the kind of stuff that you can achieve when you use low code. Am I saying that you should give up your .NET developer job or Python developer job and switch to low code exclusively? Not necessarily. But when you're tackling a new project, consider that project and do you need to write every single line of code or do you need to build a solution and get it out there? Maybe look at using a low-code platform as a proof of concept at that point. It's always a good place to start. To, even if it's just for you to prove to yourself that it works. I mean, even better if you do it and then take it to your boss and go, hey, look what I just did in two days, three days. I built this whole application. And yeah, we can click a button and it'll be live. Yeah. Honestly, in a lot of ways, it solves similar problems that Rails solves, which is like, it's really easy to make a ORM like CRUD app, you know, really, really quickly. And, you know, I think there probably are limits to that, right? Like, could I imagine someone building GitHub itself in a low code tool? Probably not. Like there's too many background services. There's too many systems level integrations. You're making a face. Do you think it's possible? I think you could I certainly think I could do it with Mendix. Really? But you've got to remember that with Mendix, you can extend it with Java as well. If you do hit that wall where there's a particular, like, really technically heavy service that you can't connect with or can't build, you can extend it with Java. That's why it's low code, not no code. But even stuff like GitHub, I mean, there's a lot of it you could do with a low code platform, a lot of it, because at the end of the day, it's all logical operators. 
you just ended up building a hell of a lot of microflows or whatever the platform uses that you choose. Yeah, I mean, that makes logical sense that if you can extend the low-code platform with code, you can do anything. I mean, even the front end, people say if you get to the end of the toolbox and you haven't got the tool for it, you're stuck, you can't do it. Actually, OutSystems has got .NET extensions for the front end. Mendix has React for extensions for the front end. I've built pluggable widgets, they call them in Mendix. I've built them to, we needed a map, a little truck that moved across it and drove down the road. And I built that as a React pluggable widget in a couple of days, having not done any React before. So there's always ways to extend these platforms if you go for a low-code one. No-code platforms, slightly different, granted. But that's where you need to make sure you choose the right platform for the right application. That's really, really interesting. There's a lot you can do there. I wonder if there is even a point still where if I'm building something on a low-code platform and I can extend it, like, is it faster to build it myself, right? Like, have we already passed that point where it's definitely not faster to build it myself? Hypothetically speaking, if you're a coding savant and have a massive library of stuff that you've built that you can refer to and add into your project, I mean, GitHub's a great repository, but not everything's going to be easy to integrate with your project. But if you build your own personal library of stuff, then you know, you'd still probably be two times faster in low code, maybe not the advertised 10 times faster. You'd still probably be faster, ultimately speaking. But there are some things that you want to have it in code and you don't want it to be reliant on a low code platform. It's your proprietary application that you need that absolute granular control. You're going to build it in code. But if it's a web app that you just want to get live to fix a problem, or a mobile app, or whatever it might be. It's hard not to consider low-code at this point, in all honesty. Yeah. It certainly creates very high expectation of uptime and stability for the platforms, too. Because like a lot of companies might have an entire team keeping their app online and dealing with outages and stuff. And you know, you're kind of outsourcing that reliability mm -hmm. to someone else. I mean, you can private host quite a lot of these now and put yeah. them on your own cloud or put them on internal tin if you want to. But yeah, you can just say, host this application for me, and I want gold standard uptime. I'm willing to pay the extra for that. And it will, they'll host it, they'll keep it running, they'll upgrade your platform, they'll upgrade your servers. If it goes down, it'll fail over to somewhere else within seconds. On top of that, they do all the pen testing and security as well. So having that on tap and not having to worry about it, I certainly don't complain. Quite happy to have someone else maintain that for me. That's really cool. So coming full circle now, you know, you mentioned that you started out studying computer science and, mm -hmm. you know, we talked a little bit about some of the gaps in computer science education. Thinking about the next generation of students, what might you want to see change about how they learn CS fundamentals, coding fundamentals, and kind of like get their start? Is I still teaching them Java as a starting point? Because if we could stop doing that, that would be great. Depends on the school. A lot do Python now. Java was the first one they taught us. I think that put a lot of people off programming because it's a hard place to start from. Great language once you get there, but I think the fundamentals are still the same, in all honesty. The basics, you know, logical operators, how you go about solving problems. I mean, even seems ridiculous, but big O notation, 
We did a whole module on big O notation, writing code by hand to do big O notation. Why are you making me do this by hand? But anyway, it teaches you best practice for how to structure your code and make sure it's at least semi-optimal, which is still a thing in low code. If you nest loops in low code, you're going to give yourself a slow application. It doesn't matter how efficient the platform tries to handle it. If you've built bad low code, you've built a bad program. So that stuff is all still fundamental and needs to remain the same. Would it be nice if there were a choice between, do you want to learn traditional code or do you want to learn low code? I think it'd be a nice option to have for some people because a lot of people will look at code and will just bounce off it because they don't want to learn all the syntax. They don't want to learn three different languages to get through three different modules. They just want to build applications to solve problems. Why not start teaching people low code? I know Mendix have a university program where they've got universities teaching people in Mendix now. Is it an exclusive course? I don't think so. I think it's just a module, but that option's there. And I think trying to broaden the appeal in that sense, because a lot of people will be put off by the fact that you've got to learn code. And so I've, I've knew people on my course who very much tried their hardest to learn code. I've spent hours trying to teach people how to write applications while I was at uni, and they just doesn't click with them. But I'm sure if I could have sat there and gone, so I drag on this block and connect it to this block. And then here's the decision block where it splits so you can go this way or this. So much easier to learn. I mean, you mentioned Scratch. I teach Scratch in schools. It's Scratch for grown-ups. I'm quite happy to call it Scratch for grown-ups. It doesn't bother me. I still build solutions at the end of the day. Yeah. I think you touched on something really interesting. And people learn in different ways. And you often see this playing out in like who gravitates towards front end versus back end. You know, like some people really are visual learners and seeing what they are doing and how it interacts makes it click. And like low code platforms have that benefit, right? So like, even if you eventually come around to the CS fundamentals, you might actually learn it quicker if you can see what's going on. And, you know, a lot of times, like when you're learning to code in traditional environment or even like a bootcamp or something, you run all this code in a terminal and like for some people that's just like not that exciting you know like it's not that exciting for me frankly right like you want to build something cool and interactive and you know visual that kind of feels like a modern piece of software yeah absolutely even on boot camps you'll get a guide and it's like right you're going to do this and this and this and you copy the code and yes it runs and you're like hey i built a thing it's like now go and build your own thing Yep. Have you got some code for me to copy? No, no, just build your own thing now. And I've, I've worked with somebody, a uh, job where I was trying to teach them that. They were with us for like a week, which is not enough time to teach anybody to program whilst you're doing your own job, let's face it. But I gave them exercises to do and they complete those exercises. I'm like, right, can you just take that and go and build this for me? And I could see them out of the corner of my eye just sat there staring at the screen. They sat there for about two hours. And eventually I wheeled over and I'm like, are you okay? Like, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Whereas if you've got that visual paradigm and you can build it up step by step, it's so much easier to follow and learn. I think there's definitely something there. I agree. So we're coming up on the end here. I always like to end with some sort of like shout out style questions for other people that you look up to. Are there any folks out there right now creating really interesting like educational content for developers or resources that you, know, you sort of, I don't know, like, want to emulate or, or learn from? 
I don't know about educational content. I tend to, I mean, whenever I come across a problem, I will Google it and find the best source for me. W3 Schools has been around for so long now, but yeah, I still end up back there for so many solutions. Always a great place to go to. As with Stack Overflow, if you haven't copied Stack Overflow code, you're not a real programmer. So everybody needs to do that at least at some point. A lot of the students that we work with are using Stack Overflow for the first time at one of our hackathons because they never learn it in class. They need to teach that at university. First module, this is Stack Overflow. And here is where you will not ask any questions, but you'll go and find the answers to your questions because that's how Stack Overflow works, apparently. Right. It's like how they used to teach people to use like a Dewey Decimal System and read like the cards in the library. When it comes to low-code, guy over the Mendix Rymocky has a podcast where he introduces low-code concepts and does videos fairly regularly about that. He's worth looking up. There's some good content there to get you started and introduced to the whole low-code paradigm and what it's about. Awesome. And my final question here, is there any like aspirational figure in tech or science or you know, dead or alive that you would love to just like have a couple hours with, take them to lunch, pick their brain about how they see the world? And I was talking to my wife and she's like, you know, Nikola Tesla or somebody. I'm like, mm, interesting guy, but that one? I'm like, Steve Wozniak, maybe? Because, you know, he's such an influential figure at the start of Apple. And I'm like, do you know who would read John Carmack, founder of ID Software, built Doom? He's got to have some interesting stories. Or Sven Vinke, the founder of Larian Studios. Baldur's hmm. Gate 3 is coming out soon for anybody who's sleeping under a rock and doesn't know. Very excited about this game. The sheer scope of the game is incredible. So to talk to the guy who's been there from day one, there's got to be stories around that. I mean, any game with 17,000 possible endings. I mean, there's got to be some incredible stories there. I'm hoping for the best. You know, it's one of those things where like the Duke Nukem Forever, whatever, like release, where it just like took 20 years and it was garbage. But I have high hopes. I invested 70 hours in Act 1. So I'm very confident that the next two acts will be amazing yeah awesome well that's a good note to end on thank you so much for your time adam i really enjoyed our conversation you definitely got me excited about trying more low code stuff i i've only scratched the surface i feel like but if folks want to find you afterwards or uh, see what you are putting out there where can you be found what are your online handles domains that kind of thing linkedin hello low code that's the best place to find me there's content there that I've put out while I was working at Mendix that go into platform features and loco concepts. Check me out on there. If you want to get in touch, feel free. Always happy to answer questions. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, uh, the feeling is very mutual. Well, thank you again. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed. Definitely subscribe for future episodes. We put them out once a week. And happy hacking. Thanks, everyone. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.
Thank <laughs> you.